Good afternoon, it's Jacinta Burton with your Thursday afternoon headlines. The first ever federally authorised Islamic bank will begin trading in Australia from next year using a long-established non-interest banking system. Following a five-year process, Islamic Bank Australia has been licensed by the Australian Regulation Authority to offer loans including mortgages. But no interest is charged because under the teachings of the Quran, it is unethical. The bank hopes to have its doors open by next year and has launched its brand at a time of rising interest rates in the mainstream banking system. The bank is tapping into Australia's growing Muslim population, currently at close to a million, but anyone can use its services. However, in line with the ethical banking policies, gambling, tobacco and alcohol companies will be turned away. Live animal export companies will also be precluded from using the banking system. IBA is owned by a Brecker Group, which is based in the United United Arab Emirates and has interests in agriculture, petroleum, retail, freight and hospitality. And in property news, Liontown Resources Chair Tim Goiter, who made a fortune in chalice mining, has paid $17 million for a home overlooking the water in Peppermint Grove. Mr Goiter and his wife Linda settled on the four-bedroom, three-bathroom home on the Esplanade this month. Set on more than 3,000 square metres of land, the property has sweeping views of Freshwater Bay and is close to Royal Freshwater Bay Yacht Club. Mac Hall brokered the deal. The property was previously the subject of a Supreme Court dispute between the Peppermint Grove Council and owner Lyndon Brown over heritage listing the bungalow-style house, which had been entered into the council's inventory in the 1990s, along with 160 other properties. Mr Brown had attempted to redevelop the house in 2014, but was refused due to it carrying the highest possible classification as a heritage property. And finally, Greens MP Brad Pettit has lashed the state government for its opaque South Fremantle power station sale process amid news the buyer could be media muggle Kerry Stokes. Government-owned utility Synergy opened an eight-day expressions of interest process more than a year ago for the sale of the heritage-listed station, which has been closed since the mid-1980s. Synergy and the state government have been fielding questions about the process and the buyer's identity since last year, as rumours swirled that the successful bidder was Stokes's Australian Capital Equity. Energy Minister Bill Johnston has been asked repeatedly in Parliament about the deal, but has insisted he was keeping his distance so as to not involve the government. WA Today claimed it could confirm the rumour this morning, citing two sources who had allegedly confirmed Mr Stokes was the successful proponent under the condition of anonymity. Former City of Fremantle Mayor Brad Pettit told Business News' political editor Gary Adset on 6PR this morning that he was not surprised by the news and had been told the same thing off the record. He said the haste with which the EOI process was conducted rang alarm bells for him, but not as much as the secrecy surrounding the success Bidder. Dr Pettit labelled the process opaque and non-transparent, poking holes in Synergy's reasoning and insisting the sale of the waterfront public asset south of Fremantle should not be commercial in confidence. A spokesperson for Australian Capital Equity told Business News it could not comment. And stay tuned as senior editor Mark Pownall digs into how school foundations are buying up land for school camps in the southwest region. We understand that business relies on being informed. 
That's why Business News is your most reliable source of news, industry insights and business connections. To stay fully informed, we encourage you to subscribe to our emails, flick through our magazine and visit businessnews.com.au for daily news updates. It's the best way to ensure you have the information you need to be future ready. Business News. More news, more insights, more connections. Mark, I went to public school, so I never got to go on any fancy camps or fancy excursions. I think the furthest we ever travelled outside of metropolitan Perth would have been Mandra once or twice. But uh, apparently kids who go to private school get uh, some very interesting camps. And in our latest edition, in the property section, you've had a look at some of the campsites owned by private schools or their associated foundations. There were some interesting properties that you came across, but the main ones seemed to be in St Hilda's and St Mary's. Yeah, um... Look, it was just a it was it was a little bit of an accident actually looking at the foundations and and saw that uh, a couple of them had made some big investments lately and I thought oh what's all this about um, so you're right it's actually uh, at this moment in time it's been the girls schools that have invested in that and you know like there's kind of like seven or six or seven or eight major girls schools and the same with the boys uh, in town I'm mean, obviously there's a lot of other big schools on the private sector but there's those sort of those sort of top ones that charge the high fees and probably can afford this stuff. Um, and uh, the, f- the, f- the first one I stumbled across was actually down uh, Metricup, so down, down over Margaret River Way, um, which was St Mary's. And they ha- already had, back in the mid-2000s, had purchased a bit of land down there, decent size, you know, 40 hectares or so, of which they had a camp on, a reasonably fancy camp, but it is actually, I think... Uh, camping, like I think it's uh, permanent tents and the like. Uh, that's my understanding, um, and maybe a bit of other more decent infrastructure. Uh, and they have recently, through the foundation, acquired the neighbour's land, uh, you know, for a bit under a couple of hundred, a couple of million dollars, um, and that uh, gave gave them eighty hectares, which is pretty big piece of land uh, down there in anyone's language. Um, and not dissimilar to some of the boys' schools that have got those kind of holdings. Um, and then whilst I was sort of then in that mood of looking around, uh, the other one, which was a bit more recent than that, is um, uh, St Hilda's, which you mentioned. And they had bought a much smaller piece of land around near Pemberton. Um, they'd paid, I don't know, one and a half, one point six million, I think. But they'd spent, the foundation had actually funded a $4 million um, upgrade. Um, it was an old cooking school, apparently. Could accommodate about 60 people at best. I mean, kids kind of thing, if, if you turned it into that, uh, within some chalets. So they've added some dormitories and it now takes about 150 students and, and teachers and has a campsite and all sorts of out, outdoor equipment. But before I get on to any of the other schools or what they do, I... Th- I was curious about it because a lot of this stuff and a lot of, if you go to their websites and have a look about it, this isn't about, you know, abseiling or canoeing. It's it's the tradition of a small, of a school camp was get out there, get these kids out there and get them exposed to the outdoors, get them out of their comfort zone and, you know, maybe see who the leaders are and, you know, take them out of a school setting and a classroom setting. I guess that hasn't changed to some degree, but there does seem to be a much greater integration um, with their curriculum. Mm. And so there's much more about retreats that involve music or art or 
you know, in fact, St Hilda said they've got a cooking technology or food technology course and they want to go down and do stuff with local food and hospitality groups. Uh, and also this well-being stuff. And, you know, Jordan, you're probably familiar. A lot of these um, schools are put in well-being centres. So this is the extension of that. So I think it's there's a bit of a change up and also making these regional, what they're calling almost regional campuses as being something that's used all the year round or more regularly during the year rather than just for those, the grade seven camp and the year eight camp and the year nine camp. Mm. And of course, we're talking about the girls' schools here and those notable transactions of late, but talking about the boys' schools here, how prolific are they or how prevalent are they amongst the boys' schools? So you said Hale? Yeah, the top, well, the top boys' schools of all have, the majority of them have a camp. And in fact, again, I think it's historically they were just ahead of, girls schools doing that it was obviously more of a boy thing and i suspect if you go and look back they probably came from when they're having cadets and they needed a camp for their cadets that would be my under my expectation so i think uh christchurch and trinity uh and one of the others are right there you know down what they call the nanga bush camp kind of area down there in dwelling up and and quite close to that uh, Wesley has one up at Bullsbrook. So they're quite close to the CBD in, in you know, they're, they're almost on the fringe of the CBD now. Um, or not CBD, but the Perth metropolitan area. Um, and, uh, and and some of them are decent pieces of land they've used forever and they've obviously become more traditional camps. Um, the only one of those that I noted that there was anything really changing seemed to be uh, Trinity, which is doing theirs up and giving it a big overhaul and they're raising money for that at the moment. Guildford have a place down around Nanup, decent sized property. I don't know much about that one. Funnily enough, Hale lease a property down around Nanup, but they just use that for their year sevens apparently. And they have, if they're focused, they've got a little tiny, like almost a house in Exmouth, which maybe they use as a base or something, but they do expedition stuff into at Exmouth and that's been their focus and I understand they are trying to get a footprint of some land for camping not for a regional campus so so they can do more of that expedition spend longer up there but that is more from what I gather more of that outdoorsy you know go and learn about yourself in a different way and you know I think all of them do a bit of that certainly I know Trinity does stuff up in the um, the islands off the Pilbara and then I also found, interestingly, Perth College sold some land around Serpentine about eight years ago, uh, and they've decided they... You know, I don't know what the circumstances of that was. They only had the land for 10 years or so. Um, but probably, like some of the schools, have decided it's better to have the flexibility. If you have a campsite, you've got to utilise it and maximise it. It means that you know, kind of every year has the same kind of experience. You have it year in, year out. Whereas if you have um, some flexibility, you can go anywhere, anytime with whatever group you want. So, you know, I can see that some of them probably take that. And you've already mentioned the connection with the foundations. Obviously, this is a big thing. You get the alumni putting funds in to make those schools better and better. And, you know, it's a lot of wealthy people send their kids to these schools. And then these kids become wealthy in their own right and want to give back to the experience they had, I guess, is what it's all about. And can I just throw in, St Hilda's were very clear that they did hope to use their campus as something that the local people could use. Uh, At some point, it would become more integrated with the local community.
you know, maybe that's smart thinking and maybe you look at these are all boarding schools, having a presence in a region and being able to draw, getting some people, some connection to your school via that way that they may later become a boarder when they go to the big city for one reason or another, then perhaps there's a, a little bit of, um, you know, good marketing as well as altruism in it. I was going to say good business. Mm. Mark, thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Optus Stadium. Now taking orders for your next breakfast or lunch meeting. If you like what you've heard, head to our Spotify page to like and subscribe. New episodes of At Close of Business are available every day in time for our afternoon wrap. I'm Jordan Murray. See you tomorrow.